often teach and and talk about the the five psychological triggers that make change hard. And because I think if leaders don't understand, this is one of the reasons why I don't like the term change management, because it makes the change process seem like a linear, logical process that's predictable and controllable and Instead, you know, organizations are made up of humans and humans are messy, emotional beings. Right. So we as leaders need to deeply understand the psychological triggers of individuals, which within organizations get amplified and exponentially blown up because we're collective human beings. Right. So what are those psychological triggers? And one you hit right on the head is autonomy. You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Because good causes deserve better results. Now... Here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver, brought to you by Yachtme, the virtual events platform 100% free to nonprofits, and PodPro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. I'm your host, Kev Kayat, and we've gone through literally dozens of problems on this live weekly show, and you should check them out in the back catalog of your favorite podcast provider or watch in my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. Just a quick reminder, you are actually the nonprofit problem solver. My guest and I are trying to make your job a little bit easier by sharing practical, tactical expertise that you can put straight into action. This podcast was recorded live, as it's always been, and you're invited to join the live recordings every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. RSVP at nonprofitproblemsolver.com. You can find me and lots of free resources at kevkaya.com, as well as Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Clubhouse. Nonprofit Problem Solver has a dedicated Facebook group and a club on Clubhouse where you can ask questions, you can join discussions with an ever-growing group of nonprofit experts and colleagues to get practical, tactical advice on being the best nonprofit entrepreneur you can be. Everyone seems to have a nightmare story about organizational change. Why is that? Surely the volume of change going on should give us plenty of ammunition for getting it right. Today's guest is change expert Nancy Murphy, and we cover a lot of ground on why most change efforts fail. It's not because of what they do, but what they don't do. And that is understand and work with the emotional experience of staff who are going through the change, especially in terms of their loss and threat. Whatever the benefits of organizational change, staff have to leave behind what they know. They can easily perceive threats to their autonomy or status that make change look like a big negative. And finally, this is where Nancy comes over all, Indiana Jones. Change efforts leave behind bits and pieces of the old regime, what Nancy calls artifacts, that reinforce the old ways and undermine the new. This is must-listen stuff if you're expecting any degree of organizational change as you adjust to post-COVID work life.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. We are now up to episode 54, and we're going to be talking about organizational change with my guest today, Nancy Murphy. Before we do that, let me just remind you about my sponsors, uh, Yachtme, the virtual events platform, which is 100% free to nonprofits, and PodPro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. So thanks to them, uh, we're able to produce this lovely live podcast direct to LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube every week. So today's topic is... Why do organizational changes usually fail? Uh, and uh, <laughs> this is this is a difficult conversation sometimes to condense to an hour, but Nancy and I are going to try. So hello, Nancy, how are you? Hello, Kev, I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me. No, really, really enjoy <laughs> looking forward to this topic. Uh, anyone who knows me knows that this is one of my uh, favorites. I can geek out on change for forever today. <laughs> and I know that you can too, because we've already done this at least once. Uh, when we were getting together to talk about uh, you coming on the show. So um, before we get into it, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into organizational change and what you're doing now. So I guess I've been a status quo challenger or change driver for probably my whole life, starting back in my Catholic schoolgirl days where I was challenging some of the less modern stereotypes of girls in our school and the opportunities that were available to us and found myself in various moments in my career in similar roles, whether it was inside the federal government and trying to drive more innovation in our grant making and more partnership mindset with our grantees, or going into philanthropy and trying to form different kinds of partnerships or encourage companies to be more responsible and sustainable in their business practices. And so I learned the hard way how to maybe not successfully drive organizational change or, you know, sort of tweak some of the things I was doing along the way to be more influential inside those organizations and in those roles. And after working in a variety of sectors, I sort of took those lessons that seemed universal. It didn't matter if I was in a nonprofit philanthropy inside a company that um, I was wanting to pull those into something that I could teach others because I didn't want anyone else to have to learn the hard way like I did. And I wanted to share those solutions. So I started this company, CSR Communications, created the Intrapreneur's Influence Lab, which is our um, program for internal change leaders, where I share all of my tips and tools and techniques. Excellent. And so where, how do people find that online? So csrcommunications.com is our website. There's um, links on there to the lab, to our ingenious weekly actionable gems that people can grab. And they can follow me or CSR Communications on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. Excellent. Now, it's funny uh, you mentioned learning from mistakes and uh, well, you know, we could, I'm sure, sort of uh, shared scar tissues and, and, and notes and so on. We, it seems to me that most of the people who work in and around organizational change and organizational development have learned primarily from failure rather than success. Uh, although clearly uh, there's a role for things that, that work because as, as, as you said, we want to get people to um, be successful and not have to go through that longer learning process. Uh, so 
where do where do you where do you normally start when you try to have this conversation about uh, organizational change? Because there's so many ways uh, of entering this conversation about uh, why do you want to change or what what the challenges to change are and so on. Where do you normally find that people get stuck get stuck and come to you and say, Nancy, we need your help. What are we doing wrong? So I guess I would say that. While there are things that are universal and somewhat predictable, where people come to me and where they are in the process and what's getting them stuck is a little different, probably in each case. Some of the common ones are, well, an organization will create a new strategy, for example, and the new strategy is kind of a transformational strategy. So they put out some bold goals, or they're changing the how they pursue their mission, for example. Mm -hmm. And they've got a beautifully produced color, lots of graphics and charts, you know, plan, except they can't figure out how to communicate it. They maybe didn't go on the search for what I often say change leaders need to be more like Indiana Jones. They need to go dig for those artifacts, those little things we leave behind when we move forward with change that oftentimes are incongruent with the change we're leading. So they've got this great plan, but they've left behind all these artifacts that are about the old ways of doing things. And then they wonder why people are struggling. So that's a big one. Or they haven't figured out how to communicate what's different in a way that allows people to understand what it means to them in their job every day or what it means to them in their partnership with the organization. So they're kind of struggling there. Or they've got some great initiatives or programs or events or things that they're kind of known for, and they can't figure out how to revamp them in a way that leverages whatever the change is and aligns with the change and drives it forward. But they can't let them go because there are too many stakeholders who who are telling them they have to keep doing that event or that initiative or that program, right? There are too many owners or people who care about it, whether it's a board member or a funder, and they can't quite figure out how to adapt it and they can't get rid of it at the same time. So it sounds as though you those are different ways of describing uh, challenges in breaking from the past or breaking from yes. the present to try and however well imagined that future is, however beautiful and colorful the brochure, people still are, struggle with saying, what do I leave behind? What, if, what, about my, yes. what is it about my current world that is no longer going to be here? Yes. And one of the things that we talk about a lot with our change leaders is the idea of loss. I, mean, this I was just going to say, lost. This is, that's exactly yeah. the word that jumped into my head at, the, at that moment. This is something that I, I thankfully had an epiphany about in a moment that was probably one moment too late in a change effort I was leading, but not 10 moments too late. So it, it worked out OK, where yeah. <laughs> um, as I, w I was a board chair for a global nonprofit. And we were in the midst of a huge organizational transformation um, and trying to influence the way international development is done writ large, not just inside our own organization. And 
a big part of that was changing our governance. And that meant changing some board members and changing the way that we met and interacted and made decisions as a board. And I couldn't figure out why there were some weird like pushback that I was getting. And all of a sudden in the middle of the meeting, it dawned on me, people were feeling grief over the loss of the relationships, of the loss of the familiarity of a meeting structure and decision-making structure. And we needed to really take a moment and allow people to articulate what they were sad about, what they were going to miss as we moved forward and create the space for that loss to be processed so that we could move forward. Yeah, I think that's absolutely vital and so often overlooked the it, there's that that psychological space that psychological safety around just talking openly about loss so we say our organization's moving forward hooray it's going to be better rah 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 all that but what we're leaving behind isn't necessarily terrible exactly and it's comfortable and we've been here for a while and you know, we can't just forget about it overnight. It's It just doesn't happen that way. And I think being explicit about that and making room for it, because here's the other thing uh, about loss and grief, of which I think is sort of in the popular wisdom, which is everyone experiences it differently and everyone processes it differently. And so we, we, we often do this when we lose a loved one that maybe we're surprised by how some people mm -hmm. react, but everybody has to react and work through it in their own way. And I, and I think that's a vital element of organizational change. Absolutely. And that's why I often say if change leaders have no other characteristic, no other skill, you know, we often think about the Gandhi, the Martin Luther King Jr., these inspirational storytellers. And yes, that is an important element. But for me, I always talk about empathy as the Swiss army knife of change leadership. It can serve us in so many ways. It has so many different angles and tools that we can use to preempt <laughs> or mm. to solve various challenges we come up against, including this idea of perspective taking, including being attuned to, you know, the resistance I was getting in that moment around these changes as a as board chair that I was leading were not articulated as I'm sad about losing X, right? right. They were coming out as a whole bunch of other things. And it's that that skill to be able to read what's underneath or behind what someone's saying and help them articulate it in a way that we can do something about it, make it explicit. And so empathy is the Swiss Army knife of change leadership, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a that that's a great one. So um I want to come on to, to to that again in just a moment, but I want to summarize where we are because I think we're we're going to rattle off these things. Uh, <laughs> you and I, and and I want to make sure that we're we're sort of documenting documenting them along the way. So uh, there are a number of reasons why organizational changes usually fail. It's not just one thing. I think we we would both mm -hmm. agree there there are a number of 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 uh, 
banana skins type things, you know, things that 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 it, with some experience you would design out of the process or you would look for and prevent. But people often are going through it's a collection of people leading an organizational change, none of whom have led that or a change of that size or that magnitude or that depth or that breadth <laughs> before and 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 make some some pretty simple changes so are mixed mistakes rather so one of them is not giving space for loss acknowledging the need for loss and grief and making space for it uh which might seem odd or or even a bit woo woo for people listening to this thinking i thought i was going to be talking about how organizations transform i didn't expect to hear anything about grief uh but that's one and it's a, it's a, obviously it's an emotional psychological concept uh, but one that we're all familiar with, and and I think in in a in a workplace setting, uh, it may not sit easily with with some people, some leaders. But I think they need to recognize how important uh, the workplace environment is, and how, and how important it is that staff are are comfortable with what they're doing in order to perform well. So if that is now going away, being shed in some way or broken down, there is bound to be some sense of loss. Uh, which could could be as deep as as grief. So that's 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 one. That's a big one. Um, another, I think, is the that we're just starting to get into, and I think is uh, also very important is the way that the change team conducts itself. And you're talking about using empathy as a Swiss Army knife, which I think is a great turn of phrase. Um, I may use that in future, but I will. I will always acknowledge <laughs> Go for it. Nancy said it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think this idea of one way, one way of expressing that empathy is is listening and really deep listening. So sometimes mm -hmm. it's what the staff are saying themselves or other stakeholders. But as you as you mentioned, it's sometimes what they're not saying. Right. Sometimes how how what, what's coming out in a vicarious way, not necessarily explicit. Yes, and this is where my Catholic schoolgirl training serves me well, because we were always taught you have two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you talk. So sometimes that serves me well. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, yes, but you can be selective about it. Okay, so uh, can I just, I'll just be a bit too literal here, perhaps, but empathy is a Swiss army knife. Uh, obviously, the image that most people would have of that is, well, there's 12 or 13 ways of using it. <laughs> can you just can you just list a couple? Uh, you mentioned recognizing things that people are not saying when they're expressing loss or grief. Uh, what other ways do you see uh, empathy come up routinely in a way that anybody designing a change process should expect? So I think one area is when we think about influence generally, oftentimes we want to start with, here's what I need from you, or here's what I need you to do differently, right? We, we start with ourselves. When we pull out, you know, the corkscrew of empathy, if we want to think about it that way, on our <laughs> yeah. <farm night. laughs> I often encourage leaders to instead start with, how can I help you get what you need? And so Maybe you're not literally asking that question, but it might be, again, that listening for, okay, what drives Kev? What is he anxious about? What's he held accountable for? How can I start with Kev? I know you're held accountable for meeting these fundraising targets. You know, I'll give you an example of a woman who was in another international NGO 
mostly funded by U.S. government. She was tasked with starting some private and corporate, you know, corporate foundation fundraising. And none of the folks in her organization would give her the time of day. She's running around going, give me things that I can write proposals for. Right. <laughs> right? I, I need things I can fundraise for. Right. Right. And all of her staff were like, oh, my gosh, you know, I, you're going for fifty thousand dollars. I've got a twenty five million dollar proposal I'm working on right now for USAID. Right. Just leave me alone. <clears throat> and so instead, I said, flip it. Go around, listen for the chatter at the water cooler. What are people complaining about in their projects with the restricted money that the federal government offers? Or, you know, right. ask people, hey, if you had 25,000 totally flexible dollars to do anything with to make that program more effective in, you know, Nicaragua, what would you do differently? What would you do with that money? So basically, she was coming in. At what can what can I do for you to help you get what you need, which enables me to now really ramp up and change part of how we raise money? So think about that corkscrew of how do I help you get you what you need? And then that helps me get what I need. Yeah, I think I think it's a classic question in uh, in certainly in in. Uh, most nonprofits, most public services, as you as you as you described, certainly the human services uh, places that I've worked, uh, I I know it's a rare thing for people to walk around saying, "How can I help you?" The the implication is that what don't you have enough to do? But really, what you're saying is that you know, for me to be successful in my job, I'm here to help you. How can I do that? And I think I just got lucky. Uh, because one of the very first changes I was involved in uh, nearly 30 years ago, uh, I actually asked that question. That's the, that's sort of the way I approached it. And it wasn't it, it was just through dumb luck, I'm sure, uh, where I asked it was like, well, how can I help? This is what we've got to do as an organization. I, I'm sort of tasked with leading it. How can I help you? Do this, and then people suddenly were very engaged and gave me a long list of things <laughs> that I could help them with. Right, uh, right. And, and suddenly, you know, you become valuable and and develop exactly. really quite meaningful, useful relationships that were very powerful at at later times when the when the cha- change got really tough. Um, so I think it. I think it's 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 funny that you said. You don't necessarily need to ask this question directly, but actually, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of proof positive that that actually works because I've used it so many times. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you can ask it directly. Other yeah. times it needs to be a little more, you know, subtle. So, yes, that's yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, that's what that's where you use that notion of empathy and listening carefully, uh, listening for what's not said, because maybe it isn't political or appropriate for you to just come out and say, how can I help you? Because that person may not be able to admit openly that he or she needs help. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And um, you know, another way to use empathy is to remember. So I think those of us who and I know, Kev, you talk about this in your book. You know, we have this myth that everybody hates change. And you're like, oh, no, I think people love change. Well, yeah. I think there's a couple of things with that, right? I think everyone loves the idea of the change happening in the world. So if you know that cartoon, right, who wants change? There's a person at the podium speaking to their, you know, all staff meeting or something. Who wants change? Everyone raised their hands, right? We want things to be different. Who wants to change? 
crickets. Nobody. So we want, you know, we want to lose 20 pounds, but we don't want to change the way we eat or how much we exercise or move. Right. 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 right? Like we want, we want the world to be more equitable, but we don't want to think about our own power and privilege and what we might need to give up perhaps to, you know, so I think there's number one, recognizing that while we all may want the end result of change, the personal change, the things we need to do differently or give up, quote unquote, that loss again, you know, we need to have some empathy and understanding for that. The second thing is those of us who tend to be these status quo challengers and change leaders in organizations may in fact perceive ourselves, maybe 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 this is true, or maybe we just perceive ourselves to be more open to change or in love with change, or we're great with change. Except I guarantee you there's some part of your life where you are very fearful of change. And so if we can identify that in ourselves and sort of remember how we feel when faced with that, it can give us some empathy for the way others might be receiving the change that we are super excited about and championing and just, you know, why are you such a negative Nelly? Get on board. You know, that's not effective. Yeah. And I think I think I think you're absolutely right. There's a difference between the 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 end goal, the transfer, the transformative result and actually making that transformation, uh, no doubt. But I think part of it as well, it, again, just going to a workplace organizational setting is um, what people don't like about organizational change specifically is the element of surprise and the total lack of control. Uh, the lack of support or or answering questions, it feel like they're completely powerless around it. And I think that's what people really don't like. About it. So when you compare it to weight loss, for example, you say, well, like, yeah, I chose not to go to the gym this time. And I knew I was supposed to, but I chose not to. And, you, you know, you have a, people will take a certain amount of responsibility and and know whether they they have control over that or not. Um, but there are elements in in organizational change uh, where where people really don't have any choice, they've no voice, they've no uh, scope for participation in any form of decision making, other than as you said, sort of showing up at the big town hall and raising their hand for change, but not to change. <laughs> right. So I often teach and and talk about the the five psychological triggers that make change hard. And because I think if leaders don't understand, this is one of the reasons why I don't like the term change management, because it makes the change process seem like a linear, logical process that's predictable and controllable. And instead, you know, organizations are made up of humans and humans are messy, emotional beings. Right. So we as leaders need to deeply understand the psychological triggers of individuals, which within organizations get amplified and exponentially blown up because we're collective human beings, right? So what are those psychological triggers? And one you hit right on the head is autonomy. Mm. So if people feel like there's a threat to their autonomy, they will react in that fight, flight, or freeze mode. And so what we want to do is we can't, I mean, it's impractical and impossible to say, 
everyone inside our 1,000 person or 500,000 person organization gets to decide how all the changes. No, that's not practical, right? right. But no, no. where can we give people choice and autonomy? And oftentimes we right. take back so much choice that's unnecessary, as opposed to saying, you know, here's the here's the end result or here's the here are the principles and spirit or values in this change. How would you change X, Y, Z of your workday so that it's right. aligned with these principles and values? Right. So give people back some choice. Yeah. Yeah. Choice and voice. The, 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 yeah. And I think and I think that's one of the key things that that I found uh, makes a, a change process actually deliverable is when you think through how whether it's a thousand or five hundred thousand or what how are they actually participating and it may be it may be quite um small and modest in terms of how they're participating in that sure. change but it's got to be it's got to be it's got to be clear and planned uh and it delivers huge benefits although i've had other i've had leaders people say that would take too long it's not it's not doable, um, but it's hard to see how the change can succeed without that opportunity for staff. Well, I mean, that's so one of my mantras is invest now or pay later. So you think it's right. going to take too long, but it's better than like racing forward. Look how easy peasy. I just laid it all out for everybody. And then you spend, you know, a good 18 months trying to <laughs> overcome the resist, like figure out why people, you know, then you've got morale issues, you've got people leaving, you've got, you know, so I, yes, it seems like it's a bigger investment of time and energy up front, but I guarantee you it will save time and energy on the back end. Yeah. And it's, I think one, one thing that I know that um, uh, certain you know, private sector uh, sales focused organizations have, have come to recognize that um, if they take the, uh, the widely recognized view in, from a sales perspective that you need to have up to a dozen, whatever it is, multiple touches with a customer before that customer trusts you and will make will actually make a trans. That's just a transactional change. Right. But if you actually want a genuine behavioral change, you might assume that it's a few more touches. So the single town hall with some emails from the leader. You right. know, I mean, that's just not going to do it, right? That's not going to lead behavior change. So if you apply that that sales mentality to the way you need to change behavior in staff, it makes a lot more sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, what are, what would be some of the other the other uh, psychological triggers that you mentioned one in terms of uh, a threat to autonomy? Can you mention share a couple of others? Yeah. So one that I think is um, it's the one that gets the oftentimes the most visceral, the, the kind of largest outsized response, if you will. And that is a threat to status. So think about um, I've often talked with nonprofits who they might be automating certain components of their fundraising, for example. And the whole fundraising team is like really resistant. And the leaders are saying, but this is going to save you time. This is going to make your job easier. This is well, they consciously or unconsciously. Right. Sometimes we can't articulate these things. We just know we're we're afraid. We're pissed off. We're right. But we can't say why. So this is where that empathy comes in. If the leader can say, ah, this might be a perceived threat to status. If a computer can do this, do I matter? Is my job going to go away? 
right? It's no longer my unique take and my relationship, you know, building ability and whatever that is going to make the result on the fundraising side. It's now an automated thing. Think about all the changes that organizations are undergoing right now to become more diverse, inclusive, equitable. There are lots of older white men who are feeling very threatened in terms of their status. Um, We're actually hearing lots of things like, well, I don't matter anymore. I'm completely irrelevant. So, you know, not that that's an excuse not to do it, but it helps to understand what's behind. And if you can mitigate that a little bit, right, then you're going to get to the result you want much faster. So status is another one of those psychological triggers. Right. And what we're saying here is, again, one of the reasons uh, that that change efforts fail. Uh, We talked about um, not giving space for loss and grief, uh, not uh, employing empathy and, and deep listening skills and so on. And these sort of pile up, but then, you know, ignoring the way that these psychological triggers play out. And when you say trigger, you mean threat too. So we've got autonomy Correct. and status. Um, and I want to sort of get through to him because I want to make, I want to give time for, to talk about the artifacts and the Indiana Jones uh, yeah. idea too, because I think this is, I think there's that's a fascinating thing. So, um, so let me just uh, list what, off what the, the other, can you share the, yeah, let me list the other off those three, other yeah, psychological triggers. So it's status, certainty, right? I know you talk about this a lot, your ambiguity principles. So if there is a threat yeah. to certainty, which is inherent in change, right? Absolutely, right. there is no certainty. Yeah, that, that's what it means. <laughs> <laughs> no, not anymore. Um, autonomy, <laughs> relatedness. So sometimes we forget that, I mean, think about at the beginning of the pandemic, for those folks who were not, used to working remotely or or who weren't in organizations where a lot of their team members were in different parts of the country or the world, they had really strong relationships at work in some cases, right? Where they saw people every day and they got to have, and so the change of working remotely was a threat to relatedness. So when we talk about reorgs, Right. That's can absolutely be a threat to relatedness. And then oh, yeah. fairness is the last one. Fairness. Yeah. As you say, for, for relatedness, one of the interesting things that, that I saw um, in a major uh, ERP, uh, you know, where the, the, the finance and, and HR systems are retooled um, and it takes a long, long time. Uh, but um, there were constant. Re, um, reconfigurations of of staff processes, and it was it was the relatedness that was throwing people off because mm. they used to complain. You know, you'd complain, "Oh, this piece of paper has to be literally walked from the second floor all the way up to the fourth floor." That's just crazy. But actually, the person who did that <laughs> didn't necessarily mind that. You know, that had grown into part of her job, <laughs> and now you were taking right. away, and she would this, visit this with Yep. <laughs> Which sounds it sounds counterintuitive because we're so focused on the efficiency elements and oh wouldn't you know, wouldn't you like to do a great job? Yeah, but when am I gonna see my friends up on the fourth floor, you know? Yes, so, notice um, that get upset people. Notice that in the list of those psychological triggers, productivity and efficiency were not <laughs> on that list at all. <laughs> no, no, they're not there. They're not there. No, that's right. So. Um and then fairness, can you say just just briefly something about 
fairness. I think we can all recognize a threat to fairness, but I think we also know, um, and I, 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 you know, I'm assuming this won't come as a surprise to you to say that fairness is not, um, well, we might agree with the principal means how it's actually manifests in a workplace. <laughs> what we, the way it drives people, uh, is again right. a subjective perspective from it from each people from each person. Right. So, where we want to pay attention to this is, you know, thinking about uh, revamping a compensation system, for example. And when again, the, this doesn't have to like factually, you could come to your team and say, here are the facts, right? This is actually fair. Right. It's the perception. If it's a perceived, and this this one's really interesting because oftentimes it's less about, is it fair to me? And more, is it fair to someone else or some other group that I care about? So this fairness thing is a really, really tricky one because sometimes it's hard to really understand where the perceived threat is. Yeah. And I think, I think the other element where fairness is highly sensitive to uh, rare, unusual circumstances, which for which it doesn't work, you know, so mm-hmm. you, as you said, like for a compensation system or, or, or um, uh, another sort of change where there's a, a small number of people who, you know, maybe losers in the whole thing. Right. Exactly. That, you know, that, that again, people for like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. There might be 99% of the people affected might benefit, but there are a few people who are not. And so this isn't fair. Um, where, where, you know, that's not set against the, any sort of calculation of fairness about the status quo. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there are, there are some things we can do again, to at least appreciate what's happening when people are, you know, freaking out or resisting or um, leaving our organizations in the midst of change. And then there are some things we can do to to prevent the significant impact. So and I think what's interesting about um, these points and and it's it's fascinating because I know when I was trying to work out all the uh, the the to go through the archaeology of all the changes that I've been involved in and was pulling out, as you said, sort of teachable, shareable concepts. Um, there were so many, you know, you have to be selective. And I think we've, we've chosen in a sort of complementary way. So this, this, this is really fascinating and interesting for me. These are things that I observed and I've recognized, and I'm sure many people who've been through change have, have, have seen these too. The way they uh, affect people's trust in the leadership is fascinating too because often people will make that decision to to leave their role or or um be less par- participative in a change or or um less enthusiastic about it based on how they see their leaders and colleagues handle these psychological triggers and their their degree of sensitivity around them and and that and and trust in that uh leadership is important because as you know when you start a new change experience, the first thing you get is all the horror stories from the last change experience that, oh, that yes. people had that didn't go well, didn't work, or you know was 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 uh, uh, counterproductive. It, again, lots and lots of horror stories and a lack of trust that often, and I'm sure you've been in this position too. You've got to reestablish that from not just from scratch, from a negative perspective mm. when you come in to try and do a change the next time. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting because 
one of the subtypes of, um, so we have, you know, three types of common types of resistance to change that I often teach. And so, and I've sort of labeled some subtypes on one, and one of those is the stallers. So these are the people who have been around long before you came in with your big change idea, and they believe they will be around long after you get frustrated and give up on the change or leave entirely. So they're just going to wait you out. And these are often the folks who are like, yeah, been there, done that, you know, right. Right. Six people ago tried that. I'm still here. They're not right. So they're right. just going to wait. They're the stallers. They're dragging. <laughs> Quote, them. unquote. Uh, the number of times I've heard those before. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, one of the things that I think helps with starting from that negative space of trust, particularly for some of those stallers who've been around for a long time and they've seen it all. Right. They know it all. They've seen it all. They've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. So I always, and this goes to some of those psychological triggers, right? This helps elevate their status if they're feeling like the new idea is the best idea. And the, those of us who've been here for a long time doing things this way and built these systems and processes and whatever, like all of a sudden we're irrelevant or we're old and stale and whatever. So this helps, that's a threat to their status. So this helps elevate their status and it gives them some autonomy. Oh, so I, pardon? Right. So, you know, so I would say, hey, talk to me about what. Yeah. Or they feel like they're being told that they're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I would say, great. Talk to me about what didn't work with those change things before. Right. So where did we fall short? Help help yeah. me not make those same mistakes. So invite them to take some leadership in there and tell you all the things that went wrong and then come up with better alternatives. Yeah, I think that's 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 the classic advice thing. That's great. That's um, I've done that very uh, effectively in the past to just say, right, well, let's hear the horror stories and make sure they don't happen. You know, what can we do to prevent those? You know, and some people actually go, well, I don't know. <laughs> and then that, right. you know, that's fine. Um, you know, it is not necessarily that you, you you don't necessarily want to neutralize that negativity, you, you know, if, if there's something behind it. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. But it's interesting. We're talking here about uh, what's been what's been around for a while. <laughs> you know, what's um, you know, the the um, the woodwork, if, if so to speak. Uh, because it's a good segue into this idea of artifacts, things that have been mm -hmm. around for a long time that are sort of that are literally part of the furniture, part of the woodwork, part of the structure of the place. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know this is a, this is a key concept for you. And um, again, something that people overlook, uh, don't even recognize as a thing to know that they're supposed to be looking for it. Um, and it can it can trip them up with regard to um, change, which is otherwise well designed, let's say. Absolutely. So, I mean, the thing about artifacts, right? So again, these are the little things we leave behind as we move forward with change that tell us who and what we value, what really matters around here and how things really get done. And oftentimes these conflict and because they're artifacts, right? They can be, maybe there's a little piece sticking out on the surface, but oftentimes they're underneath. They might be several layers down. And that's why we need to go digging for them. Because when we don't unearth them, 
and either replace them with an artifact that is aligned with the change we're leading, or if we can't do anything about it, and I'll give you an example of that, um, we at least need to recognize that it's there and then say, we can't mm -hmm. do anything about it, but we know it's incongruent. Because when we don't do that, it erodes trust, right? The leaders are saying one thing, but all the signals we're getting are telling us something different. So we don't believe you. We don't believe you really want this change or we don't believe that it's real and I can just wait it out, right? Because clearly if we haven't changed all these things, this isn't really gonna happen. So, right. yeah, go ahead. So the artifacts, uh, as to summarize, are really about um, or, or a failure to, to, to recognize that there are artifacts and and to, to to root them out undermines our own credibility as change leaders because we're saying one thing but allowing behaviors or or other things which we might call artifacts remain in place. Yes. So so let me give you some examples. Um, and but before I do that, the you know it it yes it erodes trust so it erodes our credibility. And it, may, it makes it unnecessarily hard for people to do what it is we're asking them to do. So it creates friction, right? And we, we don't and like- Barriers, yeah, like barriers to change, yeah. Right, so for example, there um, another international nonprofit that we were working with in, in this shift from 99% US government funding to wanting to balance with corporate foundation individual gifts. But all of their proposal writing processes, all of their checklists and protocols and procedures were all designed to serve one customer, one donor. Right. So they didn't work for, so people are like, well, wait, you're telling me I'm supposed to go form this partnership with whatever, but I've got this 47 step checklist that I have to go through that is totally irrelevant for this customer, this partner, this donor, right? So like, I don't get it. You're making this too hard for me. You must not really want me to do it. Right. The other example, which is a little more subtle. So that's in some ways a pretty obvious example. once you sort of look at what the things are, the processes, the workflows, we were working with another nonprofit that was struggling to retain women leaders. And they started a mentoring program and appointed a gender council to advise the CEO, but nothing was working. So we came in and did our excavation, our proprietary excavation process. And one of the things that we observed as an artifact is um, 7.30 a.m. leaders meetings. Now, when I share this with a lot of men, they're like, yeah, so? Well, okay, imagine you're a woman and you've got a family and you're trying to juggle and you've got to be on a Zoom thing where you're trying to get your kid or you've got to be in the office with a half an hour commute. Right. You know, or, um, or you're thinking about having a family and you're showing up at these 7.30 meetings all the time and you're like, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work. Like, this, right. I don't see this being possible and practical. The other one is they would start every staff meeting with, you know, little shout outs. And they all sounded something like, hey, Kev, huge thanks to you and your entire team for working around the clock last week on that big proposal. 
So again, they're like, when I share this with men, sometimes they're like, mm, yeah, well, what they, they were praising people. What's wrong with that? It's celebration. It's the gratitude. I'm like, no, but what are you celebrating? Yeah. Right. It says what we really value is around the clock work. To get yeah. the long, project long hours, uh, not family friendly. Yeah. So those were no one was saying this is what you had. This is a sacrifice. Right. But all those subtle signals. So artifacts can be everything from seating arrangements. So I, I was working with a another nonprofit association and they had merged a marketing team and a membership team. And they merged them because they thought, oh, these things are so related. We should be having synergy. They don't start with M. I mean, come on. Right. So but it, it wasn't working. They, you know, they had tried a whole bunch of stuff and people it just they had different databases still and all. This. So they brought me in to do a retreat, a team retreat. And before the retreat, I attended one of their staff meetings. OK, great. I'm noticing some things. I go to the retreat about a third of the way into the retreat. All of a sudden, I have this aha of an artifact. The membership team, and this happened at the staff meeting too. They were sitting on one side of the table. The marketing team was sitting on the other side of the table. Every convert, like comment about something was, well, they, we, us, them, right? It was, the artifact was they basically sat as two separate teams in every yeah. single meeting they had. Right. So, you know, these can be little things that are sometimes hard to see if you're inside the organization all the time. That's where I think our excavation process can be helpful because we can observe some things and realize they're artifacts that, you know, that example I gave of the shout outs at staff meetings and the time that leaders meetings started, fixing those things didn't cost a dime or require any special authority. You know, that could happen almost immediately. And you start sending different signals that are aligned with your goal of retaining and promoting women leaders. Or, or but as you said, it challenges whether people actually believe how serious you are about it. Right. But if, but if you are serious and you didn't intend for those artifacts to be left behind, but you didn't even notice them once you once they're pointed out. You know, we have a little graphic we can map, you know, what things would you get the greatest leverage or return from, which things are easiest to address. Well, those are two cases where, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, gosh, well, we'd have to go. That's a state regulation. We can't do anything about that. There's no. OK, fine. So you call it out. You let people know this is in conflict. Right. We know it's yeah. we know this isn't aligned with. But what, but other things you could just change immediately for free. Yeah. So yeah. you just have to see them. And if you're if you're truly wanting that change, then those things are very easy to address. Yeah. And it's interesting. You're, you're speaking about a sort of deeper notion of alignment. Uh, we often think of uh, of alignment w with regard to change that people agreeing or buying in <clears throat> and and having some consensus over the direction or, you know, at, at a very sort of. Uh, nominal level, you know, they just like they agree to the words. It's almost, right. but but we're really talking about n not just the behaviors, but the 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 environment, the architecture, uh, and the expectations, the defaults that govern how we understand our workplace. 
Yes. I mean, another example of sort of architecture or room design, right, is the the school system that says we're all about collaborative learning and teacher as facilitator. And right. And then you walk into the school buildings and you glance into every classroom and they're all still in individual desks in rows lined up facing the front of the room where the teacher has his or her whiteboard. And, you know, and you're like, how is this collaborative team learning teacher as facilitator, right? The structure of that room, the design of that room reinforces old ways of teaching and learning. But an easy fix. Yeah, and I think sometimes uh, we speak about alignment uh, is that you often have well, you often have in, in these organizations multiple initiatives going on at the same time, and sometimes they're in conflict. So you can have a com- you know have you know one one part of the organization is leading saying, "Oh, we want X," and another saying, "Yeah, well, we also want Y." And then you find that the way that they're thinking about them, or the artifacts, or the things that they value or don't value, don't uh, don't support each other. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to bring it to a close there only because I know if we don't, we're going to we're going to speak till uh, next <laughs> Tuesday. Um, <laughs> um, OK, so I just want to just summarize there just in terms of answering this question, why do organizational changes uh, usually fail? Uh, and there's a lot of uh, sort of the softer skills, psychological elements here. We're talking about being uh, empathetic and uh, aware of the notions of loss and grief, uh, notions of loss and grief really could apply to some of those psychological triggers around uh, status, uh, relatedness, fairness. I also read that um, autonomy, certainty, you know, those, those sorts of things. And then, as you said, um, you've got a proprietary way of, of, of looking at it through your business, CSR communications, but looking at what you've called artifacts, which are behaviors, uh, things as, 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 as soft, if you will, of, of seating arrangements, um, uh, defaults, other sorts of um, scheduling, those sorts of things, uh, structures within a work setting, which may or may not be consistent with the change. And if you don't address those, they will, they can undermine you. Absolutely. And I'm going to call out an artifact in your summary, which is, which is describing empathy and um, listening and things like that as soft skills, because, right, because we have connotations we associate with soft. And even though I can't tell you the number of articles that have come in my inbox in the last year about empathy and, and all of these like growth mindset, all of these things being the core characteristics, skills, and mindsets we need in leaders today, we do not screen and hire leaders that way because we think about those as soft skills and soft things are nice to have, but not necessary. They're weak. They're not. So I just describe these as leaders in 2021, the the leadership skills we need for the environment we operate in right now are these. And I don't describe them as hard skills or soft skills because that has connotations. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. And that that language, I think, is I think it states to whether you can observe and test them easily um, or, you know, and, and, and teach them in a in a traditional way, whereas some of these we're talking about, is, as you said, they are uh, more loosely defined. They're more about behaviors, attitudes uh, and and um, 
so almost philosophies in in some ways. But I think I think you're right. This is the word. So you, thank you for correcting me because I think you're right. The word, the word <laughs> well, I mean, that. I'm just saying it's an artifact, so we need to pay attention yeah. to what signals that sends. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole other a whole fascinating conversation we can have about the way language evolves and changes according to that. So, um, but we'll we'll try to close that. <laughs> we'll save Thank that so for much. the next time, Kev. <laughs> right, right. Okay, Nancy, just remind folks where uh, they can find you online uh, if they want to, to hear more about your proprietary Indiana Jones artifacting process. Absolutely. So if you go to csrcommunications.com, right on the homepage, there's a link to uh, learn more about the artifacts with a quick video and to schedule your complimentary artifact site survey where we map together the places you might go digging for artifacts. And you can follow me on LinkedIn, Nancy A. Murphy or CSR Communications on LinkedIn as well. That's great. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on episode 54. We'll be back uh, next week with uh, Julie Morris. So we'll see you then, Wednesday at 11 Eastern. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast. My guest today was Nancy Murphy. Find her on LinkedIn and at her website, csrcommunications.com. This podcast has been expertly produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. Go to podproaudio.com. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For more information, visit kevkayat.com. Because good causes deserve better results.